It's time to play like a jet with your host, Scott Mason. Play like a jet. What does that mean? Makai Becton, ladies and gentlemen, human beings that large should not run as fast as Makai Becton did. And if you like people just abusing other humans, the Makai Becton tape is for you. Denzel Mims with another monster score of 70 yards. Quick pass to Crowder trying to get him out of space. Slopes a tackle, and there he goes. Crowder, it's a foot race, and Crowder is in there. A 69-yard touchdown. Donald escapes, trying to buy himself some time. Fires, end zone, it's caught. Incredible play by Donald. He'll hit immediately when he got the handoff. And it's the Q-inator. Oh my gosh. Listen, thank you. From the playlikeajet.com digital studios. This is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at playlikeajet1. And it's time to break down the numbers on some of the Jets' latest free agent acquisitions. And so to do that, of course, we bring in our friend over at jetsxfactor.com, where he is the resident stat geek and co-founder. This is what we call the Chronicles of Nania, named after him, Mr. Michael Nania. Michael, what's going on, buddy? Not too much. I'm just feeling good about the Jets' free agency hall, and now we're in the middle of quarterback debate season, so sort of trying to deal with all that. But um, this is a pretty exciting time, this middle point between free agency and the draft. You can sort of react to the new additions that your team got through free agency, but at the same time look forward to the next stage, which is the draft. So a nice one-two punch of huge events in terms of team building here in March and April. Michael, you mentioned that we're in the middle of quarterback debate season, and it seems like this has been going on really since some point early in the season last year when people started talking about whether it would be a good idea for the Jets to tank for Trevor Lawrence or hang on to Sam Darnold. Of course, it looks like there's a decent chance that neither one of those things ends up happening, but whoever the quarterback is, they've got a brand new weapon now in Corey Davis. He comes in here from the Tennessee Titans. Did a show on him with David Beauclair of Sports Illustrated. If you haven't given it a listen yet, go ahead and check it out where he gave us the 411 on Davis outside of just the film. He sort of helped us navigate through the story of Corey Davis's career as a member of the Tennessee Titans. And one thing that you notice right away with Corey Davis, who, by the way, was the fifth overall pick in the 2017 draft ahead of Jamal Adams, but a very different type of personality than Jamal Adams. In fact, as I said in the show with David Beauclair, he's really the anti-Jamal Adams in a sense because he lets his play on the field do his talking. In the locker room, he'll approach guys and offer tips based on things that he's seen on film, but he's not a rah-rah guy. He's certainly not somebody who's going to make a problem in the press. So if nothing else, we know that he's not one of these diva-wide receivers that we've seen in the past and heard a lot about. But he is very much a blue-collar type of guy. I love the fact that when you talk to people that know Corey Davis or have watched him play a lot, one of the first things that comes up is his run-blocking ability. Between him and Denzel Mims, the Jets are going to have some really nasty physical wide receiver play this year. Yeah, the run-blocking is definitely a huge thing that the Jets focused on with their three skill position additions, both with Davis and Keelan Cole, a wide receiver, and also Tyler Croft at tight end all three guys have put up really good run blocking grades at pff and you turn on the film and you could see that it's something that they all care about and are passionate about and put a lot of effort into so you put davis and cole alongside denzel mims you add croft into the mix and this is starting to look like a group of skill position players that is going to block really well 
in the run game, which is important for a team that's going to run the ball outside a lot. You look at the Niners, and so much of their success running the ball was because of Kyle Juszczyk, George Kill, uh, and the blocking of those skill position players. So it is important to have those guys be willing to block and be able to block at a high level, and Corey Davis can definitely do that. And he can also catch contested passes, which is another thing that Denzel Mims brings to the table. Big-bodied guy, so he can get up there and get that ball. Even when he's covered, he's not covered, right? Yeah, Corey Davis has some really good contested catch numbers. 11 of 17 in 2020, that's 65%, eighth best among wide receivers. 2019, he was even better. 10 of 14 contested targets caught, that's 71%. And that was the best among both wide receivers and tight ends in 2019. So really good resume of catching contested passes. Another similarity to Denzel Mims. So Jets do have a couple of big-bodied athletic guys who can both run block and grab those contested jump balls. Deceptively elusive, too, because he's not a straight burner, so he's not going to get downfield and just leave guys in his dust. But he does break a lot of tackles and get a lot of yards after the catch. A big part of that is because he has those long strides, sort of similar to Des Bryant, which is why he was compared to Des Bryant when he came out of college. Yeah, um, Corey Davis isn't really a guy who you can throw the ball to on a screen and expect him to make a play. But catching the ball in the middle of the field, especially on crossing routes, stuff over the middle, things like that, he does have above, above average elusiveness in those situations. First career, he's averaged .135 broken tackles per reception. That's above the average for receivers last year, which was .111. So pretty good number there. And his yards after catch above expectation, at least plus 0.5 per reception in each of the past three seasons, which is a pretty solid mark that tells you he's getting more yards after the catch than he would be expected to get based on where he's making his catch, the defenders around him, things like that. So he's a pretty good yak guy. You're not going to throw screens to him uh, or try to get him in yak situations, but uh, he's going to catch passes over the middle and he does have good speed after the catch and is able to make subtle moves with short little jukes, things like that to break tackles and get some extra yards. Michael, Corey Davis was the first call that Joe Douglas made when the legal tampering period started, which I was surprised to hear because I thought for sure it was going to be Joe Tooney. When you think about it, it does make some sense because everybody talks about Mike LaFleur coming in and running the Shanahan offense, and people often mistake the Shanahan offense for the West Coast offense. They're not the same thing. What the Shanahan offense calls for is more intermediate passing between 10 and 20 yards, and that's where Corey Davis makes his living more than anything else. Absolutely outstanding in the intermediate area. Yeah, in 2020, he had the fourth most catches with 27 and the third most receiving yards with 493 in the intermediate range of the field, which is 10 to 19 yards down the field. Only Stefan Diggs and Calvin Ridley beat him in those two categories and he tied with deandre hopkins on the catches so intermediate range that's his bread and butter um and another good thing is that he had a lot of that production off of play action with the titans which should be a fixture of the jets offense if they carry over what the niners did the niners were very play action heavy much like the titans were and Corey davis was near the top of the league in production off of play action passes many of those on crossing routes again and stuff over the middle um, uh, in the intermediate range. So he is a very good fit for what the Jets are looking to do offensively. Durability is interesting too, because when I talked to David Beauclair, he said that Corey Davis has a reputation 
for being a bit of an injury problem, but he doesn't actually miss games. So what happens is he's banged up and he plays injured. Now, he has a reputation for when he's injured, maybe playing down to that injury. Because some guys, they're injured and they're at 85%, but they can play at 100% or it looks like they're playing at 100%. Not necessarily the case with Corey Davis, but he sort of seems to be in that Matt Stafford category. Everybody talks about being worried about Stafford's injuries, even though he's only missed eight games in the last 10 years. Davis has barely missed any time, and he's young too. Just turned 26, so those are both positives. Yeah, his durability is pretty good. He missed two games because of COVID this year, which held him back from hitting that 1,000-yard mark. He definitely would have gotten to. But, you know, even regardless of that, he still averaged over 70 yards a game, which is great. But um, only one missed game over the previous two seasons. He did miss five games with the hamstring as a rookie. But uh, since 2018, if you take out the COVID games, he's only missed one game that was in 2019 so pretty solid durability overall and i think in general one thing when you're looking at durability is that you the average player misses quite a few games it's if if you're playing every single game every year that's well above average so if you're a guy who's missing two three games a year on average that's pretty much par for the course so um for davis to have only missed three games total over the past three years uh, and two of those because of covid is Pretty well above average, so that's good durability. One potential worry with Corey Davis, and this certainly is something that has come up, is that 2020 might have been an outlier season for him because he didn't produce at this level in previous years. Although I will say, one reason why I'm not that concerned about it is because in 2018, he was also pretty good. He was better in 2020, would have had over a 1,000 yards if he didn't miss those two games. But still, I thought he had a really nice 2018 season. 2019, A.J. Brown comes in, takes over the role as number one wide receiver. They switch to more of a run-heavy offense. And so I think that's part of why his production dipped and he didn't get as many targets. But there is definitely concern that maybe he won't be able to replicate what he did in 2020. Yeah, I think that's the biggest question for me because this season does stand out as a huge, huge outlier compared to the rest of his career. Uh, 70 yards per game in 2020, and the three seasons prior to that, he only averaged about 45 yards a game. So that's a very big increase. Five touchdowns in 2020, had only six his whole career before that, so only about two per season. Um, So it really does stand out as a big outlier. His yards per target average went from, in 2019, he had a career high of 8.7, all the way up to 10.7 in 2020. That's a full two yards, which is a huge, huge increase. Um, So he was by far one of the most efficient receivers in the entire league. He led all wide receivers in the percentage of his targets that went for a touchdown or a first down. Um, He was third in the percentage of his routes that resulted in a first down or a touchdown. He was near the top of the league in pretty much all of those efficiency numbers. So I would expect him to take a a dip to some extent in all these numbers because that was a great situation he's playing with. Derrick Henry, A.J. Brown, a great offensive system, good offensive line, a lot of favorable circumstances there. So that's a concern, too. How much did he benefit from those things? And I like where the Jets are going, but they're not going to have as favorable of an offense as the Titans did to produce numbers like that. So I do expect him to take a dip to some extent, but the question is how big is that dip going to be? And also volume is a big thing. He wasn't featured that much by the Titans. He would... 
he put up big numbers because he was so ridiculously efficient when they did throw him the ball, but they didn't throw him the ball all that much, only 6.6 targets per game. And you'd assume that's going to go up with the Jets. So I would expect his volume to go up in terms of targets and catches with the Jets, but that efficiency is probably going to go down. But as long as he can keep that efficiency to an above average level and he can get that volume up to a very high level, then he should still be really effective. But um, he did put up really, really good numbers last year that were nowhere near the rest of his career. So maybe it's a sign of things to come, but I-, I would bet that it's not. But again, it all comes down to how far down is he going to drop from those very high peaks of 2020. A lot of people have brought up the fact that his skill set is similar to Denzel Mims, but I'm not super worried about that for a couple of reasons. Number one is that there's a reason the Jets targeted him. If they were concerned about that, then they wouldn't have targeted him. They would have gone after somebody who is maybe a burner or somebody like Curtis Samuel who can do a bunch of different things. I know they did want Curtis Samuel, but they went after Corey Davis first, which tells you something. And then also, I've always felt that if you're a good enough coach and you have productive wide receivers, productive running backs, productive weapons on offense and defense, you figure out how to use them and get the most out of them. I don't think it's a bad thing to have two guys that can do what Corey Davis and Denzel Mims can do, which is make contested catches, make intermediate catches, and even break some big plays down the field once they get out there and are able to make strides in the open field. So I know that on paper, people would look at it and say, well, it's like having two guys that are like Corey Davis or two guys that are like Denzel Mims, but I tend to think that's more of a positive than a negative. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they manage it because they they are very similar in a lot of ways in terms of their strengths and weaknesses, but if you manage it right, there there's no reason that's an issue. You just want to have as many different weapons as you can have, even if their skill sets are similar. So uh, as long as they manage it right, it should be okay. And looking at Davis last year, I mean, say what you want about him, but he was an elite wide receiver, period. So, you know, he's not DeAndre Hopkins. He's not Chris Godwin or Devontae Adams. Mike Evans, one of those guys, at least yet, until he proves he can do this year after year but what he did last year was elite and then you could Denzel Mims and he definitely has the skill set to develop into that type of player as well again isn't there yet has to prove it we only saw flashes but I mean you look at his skill set on film and he definitely has the potential to be one of those top tier guys so I think both of these players even though they're similar they're good enough at enough different things to where they can definitely coexist they're not one-dimensional players even though they're similar. So I think that's what's important. Two things we haven't touched on yet. We said sometimes Corey Davis can break one when he's in the open field and he uses his long strides. His deep game isn't the best, but it's not bad. And also drop percentage. He doesn't have Velcro hands, but he has pretty good hands. Definitely above average. Yeah, his hands are pretty good. His drop rate is 5.9% for his career. The average for wide receivers was 6.8% in 2020. So a little bit better than that. Um, And the deep game has been interesting for Davis because he's had seasons where he's been really good. He's had seasons where he's really bad in terms of production. Um, So he's been all over the place. Like in 2019, he was targeted 11 times on deep passes and caught none of them. And obviously we're just looking at the production here. That could be his fault um, for dropping the ball, for not separating enough, but could also just be the quarterback's fault for throwing terrible passes. And even when he is good, it could also be a credit to the quarterback for throwing ridiculously good passes 
or to the DBs just being absolutely terrible. But overall, the production in 2020 was good. Caught six of his 12. That's half, which is well above average. Um, the average is about, I believe, around 35% for percentage of deep passes caught. So six of 12 in 2020. That was really good. 2018, eight of 13, 62%. So he's been up and down in this area. But overall, you look at his game, I think he definitely is a good deep threat. He's not Tyreek Hill or Deshaun Jackson in terms of straight up speed, but kind of similar to Denzel Mims. He has that physicality and the subtlety to his route running to beat press and stack it up and get himself open and then make those contested catches. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. The other big name that the Jets went out and got was on the other side of the ball, and that, of course, is Carl Lawson, the edge rusher from the Cincinnati Bengals. I already love this guy because he's a huge fan of Jamaican food, loves oxtail as one of his favorite cheat meals, so that endeared him to me already. But let's talk about him as a football player, elite pass rush production in 2020, but this is sort of like we've talked about in the past with a guy like Leonard Williams. Now, Leonard Williams, the last year he was here, didn't have any sacks, but there were years where he'd have a couple of sacks and people were saying, oh, we only had a few sacks, where's the pass rush production that we're expecting? So if Carl Lawson continues to give five, six sacks a season, fans are going to get restless. But if you look at the numbers that indicate the effect that a player is having on the quarterback, even with the five and a half sacks, Lawson had a big year for Cincinnati. Yeah, sacks are a really bad stat. I I honestly don't care how many sacks he gets at all. As long as he's putting up pressures, he can put up zero sacks for all I care because Players just don't have control over how many sacks you get. You look at Lawson's film, and there are so many countless plays in which, and, and Joe Blewett has broken this down on his film breakdown that he did at Jets X Factor, but there's so many plays where he's beating the guy in front of him as fast as you can possibly ask him to beat him, but he's just not getting the sack because the ball's coming out quick, and there's nothing he can do to control that. And part of that is that there aren't other good pass rushers around him. He had the highest percentage of his team's quarterback hits in the league last year, over 43%. And that was over 10% higher than the second highest ranked player in that stat. He was second in the league in quarterback hits. He was fourth among edge rushers in pressures with 64. Um, So those are the things you can control. There's nothing stopping you from creating pressure, beating the guy in front of you. Uh, even quarterback hits are a little bit erratic because if the ball comes out, you might not have enough time to get there. But uh, you generally do have time to at least hit the quarterback, even if he gets the ball out. So those are things that you you can control as a pass rusher. If you're good, you should get your pressures and your hits. But the sacks are circumstantial. You got to be able to have enough time to get there, and that's not something you've control over. So Lawson just has you know been unlucky throughout his career that he hasn't been able to get those hopefully playing in a pretty stacked Jets defensive line, he can get more, but it it just doesn't really matter to me because if he's creating pressure, then that's what matters. And if the sacks come, they come, but that's not something he can control. And hopefully his pressure creates more sacks for other players in the defensive line, like Quinn Williams, Franklin Myers, Rankins. Um, but in terms of just doing his job, creating pressure, hitting the quarterback, he's about as good as it gets. So, my message to everyone would be just ignore the sack totals. It's They've been fed to you your entire life as the best way to evaluate pass rushers, but they're simply not. I mean, Jordan Jenkins had an eight-sack season a couple years ago. 
And are we supposed to think he's better than Carl Lawson? No, he's not. Because most of those sacks were cleanup sacks where someone else created the pressure. And all he did was chase the quarterback out of bounds. Sometimes there were stunts in which Quinn and Williams, someone else would make a great play to get him wide open to get to the quarterback. And that's just not impact. Impact is beating the guy in front of you and just destroying the play by getting in the backfield and causing havoc and making the quarterback throw the ball away, making the quarterback throw inaccurately, forcing him to throw interceptions. And that's what Carl Lawson does. So sacks are extremely misleading. They're great to get, but just because the guy isn't getting sacks doesn't mean he isn't great. And Carl Lawson is an elite pass rusher. Michael, it's like wins for a pitcher in baseball or batting average. They're outdated metrics to get that worked up about. Now, sacks are certainly important, but as you said, they're not as important as we've been brought up to believe all these years. And I think that over the last couple of years with the advanced understanding of analytics, people are starting to see that. And that's why they understand, and certainly the Jets front office did, how efficient Carl Lawson has been as a pass rusher. He's been one of the most efficient in the league. Yeah, and Carl Lawson's efficiency as a pass rusher is what really excites me the most because it he's not a one-year wonder. He's been doing this his whole career. It's just that he finally got the opportunity to play more of the season. He stayed healthy. He played a career high in snaps per game. But the efficiency and his ability to create pressure has always been there throughout his whole career. So that really inspires the confidence that he's going to keep this going and that it's not you know, a fluke like Trey Hendrickson, for example, had a very good season, but it was the only good season that he's had. So it you're you cannot you can be you're less confident and that he's gonna keep that going. But Lawson's been doing this since day one. His entire every season of his career, he's at a pressure rate above thirteen percent, which is really, really good. The average for edge rushers is around eight, nine percent, fluctuates between there. So a good deal above that. And over the past four seasons, he has one of the best pressure rates among all edge rushers. Um, Joey Bosa, Nick Bosa have uh, both of the Bosa brothers haven't beaten Von Miller, but 14.3% pressure rate for his career. That's fourth best among qualified edge rushers uh, since 2017. Again, only behind Nick Bosa, Von Miller, and Joey Bosa. So every season of his career, he's been really efficient. Um, and that really gives you the confidence that he is just flat out good and he's going to continue to be good uh, at least throughout the duration of his prime. Michael one of the interesting things about Carl Lawson too is that yeah he's a scheme fit which is important but he's incredibly versatile so he could fit a whole bunch of different schemes and a whole bunch of different formations. Yeah I think he's a good scheme fit because for the most part he's going to play that down defensive end spot on the outside five tech nine tech seven things like that wherever he is on the edge he can put his hands in the dirt and play the role that Nick Bosa played in San Francisco and Kerry Hyder last year uh, with Bosa out. So he's able to put his hands in the dirt and do that, but he can stand up as well. He's not just a down lineman. He is athletic enough to stand up on the edge, rush from a two point stance and drop into coverage. Occasionally. It's not something he's done a lot. It's not something he's particularly good at, but he is athletic enough to at least uh, provide the threat of doing it to at least you know confuse the defense just to present that opportunity and know it's something he could do give the opponent something else to think about um, but yeah, he does have some versatility um, in terms of the side of the defensive line though he was very uh, leaned heavy to that right side of the defensive line last year he had 
all of his pressures from the right side of the defensive line last year, and that gave him the most pressures on that side in the entire league. Actually, all but one of his pressures. He had one pressure from the left side, but he had 63 pressures on the right side of the defensive line. That was the most among edge rushers, 15 more than any other player. So he was very right side dominant in 2020, so that is something to keep in mind. We'll see if the Jets rotate him between both sides more, but he was going up against the other team's left tackle for uh, pretty much all of his pass first snaps last year, and we'll see if the Jets continue to do that, but he's a good scheme fit, uh, is able to stand up now and then, but uh, I think the biggest thing is that he does fit exactly what I think the Jets needed in that role. Young guy too, which is nice. Just like Corey Davis, he's going to turn 26 this year, but unlike Corey Davis, This is not a guy who has been as durable, had quite a few injuries throughout his career. Talk to James Rapine of SI about this on the podcast. This is what caused Carl Lawson to drop when he was at Auburn all the way down to the fourth round. And those injuries have continued to follow him at Cincinnati. So while we're optimistic that he's going to be able to stay healthy based on his nutritional routine and the way that he works out and the fact that he was mostly healthy this past year, that's a lingering concern for sure. Yeah, definitely some injury concerns uh, with Lawson. He played all 16 games as a rookie and in 2020, but uh, barely more than half uh, in the two seasons between that. 19 of 32 games from 2018 to 19. Torn ACL in 2018, 2019. He had a hamstring injury that kept him out over two separate pairs of games. So those are definitely some question marks that to keep in mind going forward. And it's always concerning when you hand out big money to a player with that sort of reputation. But uh, I think it is also important to keep in mind that, you know, he did have those struggles, but he it hasn't had chronic injury issues. Again, he played all 16 games last year and as a rookie, um, but had that torn ACL in 2018, then dealt the hamstring the next year. So some question marks to keep in mind with loss and durability. The Jets are paying Carl Lawson to get after the quarterback. Let's not get it twisted. And he does that very well, as we've talked about. He's not quite as good in run defense. Joe Blewett talked about this. Not that he's terrible. He's just not anything special in that area. And as you said, Michael, coverage ability, he hasn't really shown any. Now, to be fair, he hasn't been asked to do it a lot. But still, those are two areas where you wouldn't exactly have a lot of faith in him. Yeah, in terms of the run defense, he's just okay. He's not terrible. But he he's not Khalil Mack. Like, you know, if, if you can do that, like if you can be Khalil Mack where you're an amazing pass rusher and you're also going to go out there in the run game and just shred up so many plays and, you know, that's great. You're a superstar. But you know, the primary reason that you pay a pass ru- pay an edge rusher is to rush the passer. And Carl Lawson does that in an elite level. So you can deal with the decent run defense. It, you know, it holds him back from being a mega star in a Khalil Mack sort of way. But it, it it's not a big deal that, that he's not terrible is the problem is the uh, the thing that is most important. Um, you know, he's not great. His PFF run defense grades have been pretty much dead on average every single year. Um, he doesn't make a ton of stops against the run uh, and early in his career. The reason he wasn't playing too much was because he was pretty much exclusively playing on passing downs. But the Bengals did get more confident in his ability to play against the run. He got up to a more average run pass split over the past couple seasons. So he's able to play a starting role after being only passing down guy early. Um, But yeah, for the most part, he's an average run defender, not a big deal. 
Um, if you're an elite, if you're getting an elite pass rusher, an okay run defender, that's perfectly fine. Um, and in terms of coverage, not something he's done a lot. He's only dropped into coverage about one snap per game throughout his career, but he's really been exposed when he has 12, 13 passing for 164 yards. That's 2.7 yards of cover snap, which is very, very high. Um, so it's, it's not something you want him to do a ton. Like I said earlier, he is athletic enough to at least be capable of doing it just to present that threat to the offense is something he might do something to keep in mind but uh it's it's not something he's good at one thing he's also had problems with is keeping the penalties in check i hadn't realized this until i read your article at jetsxfactor.com but boy he's been penalized a lot yeah penalties are definitely something that uh, have been a problem for him 19 penalties in his career um, over 18, about about 1,900 snaps. So per 1,000 snaps, he's averaging about 10 penalties. The average for edge rushers in 2020 was four and a half. So he's committing penalties throughout his career more than twice as often as the average edge rusher. So that's a little concerning. It's definitely something uh, to keep in mind in terms of the offenses that he struggled with the most. Offsides is his most common penalty, six of those. Um, and pre-snap has really been the problem. Over half of those penalties are pre-snap. Six offsides, four neutral zone. Um, he does have four roughing the passer calls, although he did have none in 2020. But pre-snap penalties have really been the problem. And that is sort of a side effect when you're a guy who has as great of a get-off and is as explosive as he is. You know, when you're timing the snap as well as he does, sometimes you're going to be a little bit early. but um, Which I guess is a good thing because pre-snap penalties are generally less catastrophic than roughing the passer calls um, things of that nature um so uh, but it, it's definitely something to keep in mind it's not a huge deal again you're we're probably talking about he commits maybe two penalties over the entire season more than the average edge rusher would which is not ideal but it's also just a small aspect of the game so it is a weakness but it's it's not the end of the world the two big-ticket signings for the Jets this offseason were Corey Davis, the wide receiver from the Tennessee Titans, and Carl Lawson, the edge rusher from the Cincinnati Bengals. And now we know a lot more about them from an analytics perspective, thanks to our buddy Michael Nania, resident stat geek and co-founder over at JetsXFactor.com. Thanks so much for coming on for the Chronicles. Really appreciate it. We'll break down some more of these guys on next week's show. But in the meantime, I know you've got plenty going on right now at JetsXFactor.com, right? Yes, and, and we're really getting into the draft stuff now. I'm going to be doing some uh, breakdowns of the advanced numbers of the quarterbacks and all the other different positions that the Jets will be looking at. Um, I'll, I've got access to a lot of really cool numbers that I'm just really excited to get into and break down, but a ton of quarterback film. Um, we've got we've got so many different great draft writers now um, that are breaking down the film over here. In terms of the quarterbacks, I actually just looked at Zach Wilson's Coastal Carolina game, which I think was a pretty underrated performance. Everyone says he was awful in that game and that it was the one time he played an elite opponent. He wasn't good, but I thought he put a lot of good stuff on tape in that game. He had some bad plays. He struggled at times, showed some weaknesses, but he also had a lot of great reps in that one. It was really a complete Zach Wilson experience, more so than it was him struggling. So I have a ton of plays on that game, but the, the quarterback film, the draft film is really ramping up uh, at Jets X Factor. 
I've watched that Coastal Carolina game a couple of times myself, Michael, and I actually thought he was pretty good in that game. He had his team ready to score to win the game at the very end. I think his teammates really let him down there. There were a ton of drops in that game. 100 yards worth of drops on four across four drops. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the narrative has been way overblown, and mostly it's from people who didn't watch the game or didn't pay that much attention to it. If you go and watch the game, and the game is on YouTube, you can pull it up. It'll have every single offensive snap there for BYU you'll see Wilson played well that day but as you said Michael just an insane amount of drops over a hundred yards left on the field in easy drops not to mention the fact that people forget that game was played on like three days notice so I don't know that that is the black mark on Zach Wilson's resume that other people think it is but we'll see what other people say as we get closer and closer to the draft as you said Michael going to be a wild time plenty of stuff over at jetsxfactor.com and also at playlikeajet.com we're breaking down the draft we're giving you all the latest news we're taking on the guys that the Jets brought in in free agency giving you all the info there plus we've got our YouTube channel up now luke grant and clayton smarslock doing play like a jet live every week kayla pace with her commentaries pace's playbook and so much more original content over there on our youtube channel plus of course we have the daily show so if you haven't given us a five-star review on itunes yet for that if you could go ahead and do that for us really appreciate it easy way to help out the show if you like what we're doing doesn't take you much time doesn't cost you any money but it goes a long way to help us out so if you could go ahead and do that for us we'll be quite grateful and for the latest and greatest the new york jets podcast you know where to go that's play like a jet digital and play like a jet.com